Well, today we finish out the series we started a number of weeks ago entitled Words. And uh, we started this series because of what Scripture says about the words that we use, that they are of extreme importance for us. You know, we often don't place emphasis on the words that we use the way that we should, but the Bible has an awful lot to say about our words, how we use our language day to day. Proverbs says that the power of life and death itself is in, is in the tongue, it's in the words that we use. And so when we started this series, one of the things that we looked at was how we use our words on a daily basis with those around us to either build them up or to break them down. And uh, every day we're either building up or we're tearing down, building up or breaking down through the words that we use. Well, the second week in the series, we looked at hurtful words and how there is a tendency for, for many to use words as weapons. And you may have experienced that even in your grown-up years. You may have experienced it in relationships where people use words as weapons, uh, uh, consistently tearing you down, breaking you down. And uh, we talked about the relationship between the words we speak and the condition of our heart, that Jesus said it's out of the overflow of our heart that the mouth speaks. And so if we tend to hurt people consistently with words, uh, then we need to examine our hearts because there's a heart issue there beneath the surface. It's not a language issue, it's a heart issue. And the Bible makes that very clear. So we talked about hurtful words and having to define ourselves, not on the words of others, but on what Jesus himself says about us, what Scripture says about us. And so we looked at hurtful words. We also looked at the topic of gossip. That was a good juicy sermon, right? You probably said all kinds of things about that. Uh, so we looked at gossip and how Scripture tells us to avoid gossip, to be proactive in avoiding gossip. Proverbs is filled with passages that talk about uh, the restless tongue and, and pr- that talks about the, uh, the dangers of gossip. But we also even took it a step further and we looked at how Scripture tells us to avoid the gossip, not just gossip as the word spoken, but to even avoid those who spread gossip, to not be identified as those who spread gossip. So we talked about the, uh, uh, the biblical picture of gossip. We also looked at encouragement. And uh, Barnabas being an example, his, his very name is the son of encouragement and how there's a great need for us to, to, uh, to build others up and how we can specifically do that. We gave you an opportunity even that Sunday to jot out a note of encouragement to someone, to put in the mail that week to uh, just help build them up, to meet them where they were and to speak words of life into, into their lives. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at rebuke. Uh, rebuke and correction. You see, the series is not just a big fluffy series that talks about, you know, throwing roses everywhere we go and building others up. There's a place for us to speak words of correction and even rebuke into the lives of others. We have to be very careful how we do that. And so we trace that through. If you want to go back and listen to that message, it's on our website. But we talked about uh, the specifics of of, uh, delivering correction in the life of another person, of how we need to be faithful to deliver it, because it is an act of love. If you see a, another person in the faith who is uh, wandering out of God's will, taking steps that are going to hurt themselves and hurt others, you know, we can't claim to love them if we don't speak truth into their lives. And so we have to be faithful to, d- to uh, deliver uh, rebuke and correction. But we also are fools, according to Scripture, if we don't receive rebuke and correction from those around us as well. And so we looked at that two weeks ago. So today we come to the last message in this series entitled Words. We're looking at a message simply entitled Confession confession. And so we're going to look through scripture at what the Bible has to say about the topic of confession, specifically as it applies to the sin that is often a part of the lives of even those who are closest to Christ. So we're looking at confession today as it relates to sin. Dave was a CEO. He was a CEO who had the support of virtually everyone around him in the company. It was not too many years ago, it seemed, that he had started in the company. He, he had started the lowest, really the lowest levels. He had worked his way up through the years to the point to where he had been ultimately given the highest position of leadership 
in that corporation. Everywhere Dave went, people seemingly bowed down to him. I mean, his word was gold. His employees loved him. People clamored to work under his leadership. He had done well in leading that company. They had shown profits. They had expanded. In every area you looked, things had benefited because of Dave's leadership. Dave had perks and he had privileges that not everyone was able to enjoy. But at the same time, Dave also had issues beneath the surface that he also did not know how to manage as well. I think the enemy would have said it was probably the perfect timing. Dave's family was away, and as his paths crossed with the wife of one of his closest friends, the enemy would say the time was ripe for a fall. Before the night was over, Dave had done the unthinkable, and as a result of it, his best friend's wife would turn up pregnant because of what had happened. The story I've told is a story you're familiar with. His name's not Dave. His name is David. And he wasn't a CEO. He was a king. And what I just described didn't unfold in some urban center in our country, Atlanta, L.A., New York, or Dallas. It happened in the city of Jerusalem. 3,000 years ago, those events unfolded, and yet the way they were addressed, the way they were remedied, And even the effects still come true today in the lives of people, even right here in this building. King David was a man who had everything. He had started as a little shepherd boy, the youngest of his family. And though everyone had overlooked him for leadership, even his own father, it would be David that God would place his hand upon to ultimately lead the nation of Israel. He had proven himself there as a shepherd boy. He had not only cared for the flock as he would one day care for the people of Israel, but he has also defended those people. He would, had defended the flock against the lion, against the bear, as he would also one day defend the people of Israel. But on the day that 2 Samuel 11 speaks of, when King David would walk out onto the rooftop of his palace and he would look across to the next building as Bathsheba, his best friend's wife, would walk out to bathe that day, everything would change in an instant. To the point to where today, if you were to raise King David's name in the circles that we often navigate as believers, very few would talk about how he had protected his flock back in the early days. Many would say, oh, that's the man who fell in committing adultery with Bathsheba. You see, David was marked by that sin, but what is often overlooked is that in the pages of Scripture, we also see in two specific chapters, especially in the book of Psalms, we see a beautiful picture of what confession looks like as marked in the life of King David. His sin would be atrocious. There would be fallout from that. He would commit murder to try to cover the effects of his own sin. Deception never covers disobedience. We understand that clearly. And yet David, despite the fact that he had fallen so badly, also paints for us the beauty of what confession looks like and how God responds to those who are willing to come to him, owning their sin and finding the grace that God offers. And so David is a beautiful picture of this. By the time we get to the Psalms we're going to look at in just a moment, one year would have passed since David had committed those sins. And so for approximately 12 months, for a one-year span of time, David would run from his sin. He would try to hide his sin. No doubt, if he's like most of us, he would rationalize his sin. I'm sure there were times where David blamed everybody except himself for the sin that he had committed. David would run from God. He would distance himself from the Lord. And I would be willing to say that it was during that one-year span of time in David's life that it was probably the absolute most miserable time that he had ever experienced in his life. 
And so let me say this, that for you as a believer and for me as a believer, the most miserable place that we can be in our lives is not going through a time of great difficulty because God is faithful and God uses the worst of times to bring about good. The most miserable place for us as believers is not to go through times of challenge or times of of trial or times of testing because in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the strength we need, we have the grace we need to, to, uh, to move through any challenge, any trial, any difficulty that comes. The most miserable place for a believer like you and I to be is to have a relationship with God and yet to embrace sin, placing it over our relationship with God, and to choose that sin over closeness to Christ. That is the absolute most miserable place to be. And I can say that if you were here this morning and you have a genuine relationship with God and yet you have embraced some sin in your life that you are willing to cultivate, you're willing to embrace, you're willing to coddle and to treat it as your, as your little pet sin and you place that sin, unwilling to confess it, unwilling to turn from it, over and above your relationship with God, you are one, one either miserable person or one hard-hearted individual who cannot even dis- discern the voice of God. God in your life any longer. Confession is that important for us because it determines whether we walk in victory as a result of our sin or whether we suffer the worst consequences of all, and that is a broken fellowship with God. Let me give you a principle this morning. We're going to begin to sift it through the pages of Scripture. The principle is this, is that confession takes possession of our sin and it leads to reconciliation with God. What is confession? Confession is taking possession of your sin. It's possession, taking possession of my sin in my life, not blaming it on another person, not trying to uh, distance myself from it and, and, and find some other rationalized cause for why that sin took place. No, confession is when we take ownership, we take possession of our sin before God as believers We confess it to God and we find that it's at that very point that the hinge begins to swing and we're able to see a fellowship with God that is reconciled as a result. What does the word confess mean? It literally means to agree with. And so whenever we think about confessing our sin before God as believers, when we talk about confession, it simply means to agree with. And it is the starting point for being right with God after we commit sin in our lives as believers. And so confessing is agreeing with God. Let, let, me just, let me ask this question, by the way. Why is it that we have such a difficult time taking ownership of our own sin? Why is that so difficult? We have such a difficulty owning our sin. It's always uh, our spouse's fault. You know, if, if there's an argument within the marriage, it was always their fault, isn't it? You know, if they would just move, if they would just come over a little bit, if they would just you know, uh, uh, own up and confess, then everything would be okay. It's always their fault. It's never our fault. It's always the teacher's fault while we made an F. They didn't teach it properly. They didn't cover the material. And now I've got an F for it, and and it's all their fault. It's always the government's fault. It's always the president's fault. It's always the congressman's fault. It's always the coach's fault. Fire the coach because last time I checked, coaches don't play, right? Many times it's the team that executes or fails to execute, but the coach is always the one who gets the ax whenever things head south. That's another conversation, I suppose. But it's always somebody else's fault. You know what? McDonald's does serve hot coffee, don't they? Remember that lawsuit a number of years ago? A lawsuit that won successfully, if I remember correctly. Didn't research it, but from the best that I can remember, the uh, lawsuit was filed because hot coffee was delivered through the drive through window at McDonald's. Who would have thought coffee would hurt you if it was spilled on your body? And it's always somebody else's fault. It's exactly the way we operate in regards to our sin. We have a very difficult time owning our sin. And by the way, why is it we also have a difficult time calling our sin, sin? It's not a shortcoming. It's not a... It's not a fault. It's not a weakness. 
but sin. And whenever we choose to sin against God as believers, it is a choice made to plant our feet, to stiffen our jaw, and to look God in the eye, so to speak, and to say, I'm doing my will above yours. It is the highest act of rebellion, the highest demonstration of pride, and yet we often whitewash it by calling it something less than what it is. It is sin. And when we see David confronted with his own sin, the way he addresses it one year after the fact is nothing short of absolutely beautiful. And so turn with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms, chapter 51. The book of Psalms, chapter 51. Confession takes possession of our sin and leads to reconciliation with God. You may have a heading before verse 1 there in Psalm chapter 51. Listen to what the heading says in my Bible. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This psalm, one year after the fact, is David's response to his sin before God. Isn't it amazing that God would give us written testimony from David's own pen of his response to the brokenness that sin brings and what God's response is when we come to him in confession. Psalm chapter 51 beginning verse 1. He says, be gracious to me, David writes, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Let me point out a couple things there real quickly. Look back in verse 2 again, at the end of verse 2. David says to God, cleanse me from my sin. He takes ownership of his sin before the sight of God here. Verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. You know, David had every reason to say, you know, God, I'm the king of this whole country. I'm the king of the whole nation of Israel. And she had no business walking out on that rooftop, uh, uh, showing herself to me. I mean, what man could turn that down? David had every reason to say that. But you know what? He comes here in a place of brokenness after being confronted with his sin. And he, all, all he can do is take ownership of what he's done. This is my transgression. This is my iniquity verse 2. This is my sin, verse 3. And then in verse 4, he realizes where he stands in the sight of God. He says, against you, God, only you have sinned. Look at the end of verse 4, what he says. He says, you are justified when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. And it's as though David now finally, after 12 months time, understands the scope of his sin of what he had done. That in the sight of God, God had no reason to bless him. God had no reason to accept him. And it's almost, you can sense the heart-wrenching nature of David's confession to God. He says, oh God, you are completely holy. You are, you are above and beyond all that I can even imagine. I am a sinner. You are holy. You are perfect. You are blameless. You have every right to judge me. You have every right to speak against me, David says at the end of verse 4. And what he is demonstrating for us here is what confession looks like in the life of the believer. It is owning, it is agreeing with God about our sin. Here's the thing. I'll preach messages at times. It may take weeks or months to apply. 
you know, I'm preaching maybe on trials, for example. And you may kind of be a smooth sailing. Life is good, you know. You're getting a pay raise. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're blessed at work. You've got a lot of friends, you know. Life is good. You, know, you might not have a trial for months down the road. And it's like, what was that message he preached? What was that passage of Scripture? You, know, you don't really apply. This is a message we will all apply today. You know what? Unless you are holier than anyone I've ever met, you will sin sometime between now and the time you lay your head down to go to sleep, won't you? And I'll be the same way. I'll probably have a longer list than anybody in this room. It may be a thought we have, maybe an action we, we, we partake in. It may be a, a word we speak. And what we have to decide is, at that point, how will we respond to our sin? We will confess it, own it before God, turn from it, or will we continue to whitewash it, cover it up, treat it as a pet, and move on, distancing ourselves from God? David says, this is my iniquity, this is my transgression, this is my sin. Three different words. He covered it as clearly as he could to describe what he had done. You know, there's another passage of Scripture as well. Hold your spot there in chapter 51 and flip back to Psalm chapter 32. Because when you look at confession and reconciliation as it's dealt with in the, God, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 51, Psalm 32 are the mountain peaks that rise to the top. In all the book of Psalms, if you want to study what confession looks like and God's response to honest confession, Psalm 51, David pouring out his heart, confessing before God his sin after having run from God for a year, and Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is the after the fact psalm. He confesses in chapter 51. Listen, this may mean very little to some of you who are walking the walk the way you need to, but for many of us who stumble and fall and sin on a consistent basis and we have to come crawling back to the grace of God, listen, Psalm 32 is excellent news because it captures for us the beauty of how God responds and the effects in the life of the one who sinned when we come to God on his terms. Look at what David says in Psalm chapter 32. Verse 3, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. The, uh, through my groaning all day long. David is capturing what many of us have experienced. Whenever we choose to sin against God, and we know that we've sinned, we know we've done what was wrong, whether it's a small sin or whether it's a large sin in nature, and we choose not to come to God on his terms, we choose not to confess it, to own up to it, to, uh, to uh, uh, agree with God that we've fallen. If we choose to just suppress it, hide it, coddle it, keep it close to us, God will absolutely wear us out as a result if we belong to him. David says, when I tried to suppress my sin over this course of this one year, verse 3, he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. I would be willing to say, in a group this size, with the 400 adults or so that will be here these two services this morning, that there are at least a handful, if not a bucket load of people, who are right there in that place, and I've been there a thousand times in my life not willing to own the sin that I've committed before God as a Christian and suffering on the inside as a result of it, the miserable experience that comes when we don't own our sin before God. Verse 4, he says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Your, your version may have a little Hebrew word that says selah. It simply means to dwell upon this, to think about this. And if we do think about this, what we realize is that, is that God, through His Holy Spirit, comes to the believer at that point of sin, and He begins to what? Convict. Conviction always precedes confession. Conviction always precedes confession. There is a big difference between being caught and saying, I'm sorry, knowing I'm going to head right back to that mud pit again, the earliest chance I get, 
There is a huge difference between that and the tears flowing, snot flying, God, I have sinned against you, forgive me. Can I still please have your grace in my life? There is a huge distance between the two. Conviction always precedes confession, and it's because God loves you. The old preacher once called the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven. And man, what a great description. Because when we as believers belong to Christ, for whom God knows the cost of sin in our lives, we begin to wander out into the high weeds and we cross the guardrail and get off into the woods and we step out of God's will. He loves us far too much to let us go that direction. God knows the high cost of sin. We've got a whole book with 66 smaller books in it that detail for us the, co- the high cost of sin. God loves us too much to let us go our own independent way as believers off into sin. And so he sends the Holy Spirit. And when we commit that sin it's the holy spirit who speaks into our lives call it guilt call it conscience whatever you want but it's the holy spirit speaking into the life of the believer saying you should not do that you cannot continue to do that and it gnaws at us and it drains our it drains our intensity it drains our vitality david said it in verse four day and night your hand was heavy upon me and at that point when the holy spirit is speaking into our lives at that point of conviction we have the biggest choice of all to make either we're going to continue in that sin and suffer greatly Or we can instantly confess that sin, find his grace, find his forgiveness, and be reconciled in our fellowship with God. And that's what David did. It's exactly what David did. Look at what he says moving on through chapter 32. He begins to to capture the beauty of the heart that makes itself right in confession before God. Verse 5, he says... In verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Look at the the end of verse 5. Man, what a beautiful verse. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah, it's as though he said, you think about this. It was when I ran from God, the conviction of God was upon me. My life was miserable. But as soon as I acknowledged my sin, And as soon as I confessed my iniquity to God, what does he say at the end of that verse? He says, it was the beauty, it was the magnificence of the forgiveness of God that removed his guilt. And it's the way God works still today. You know, the, the government established back in 1811, 200 years ago now, established something called the Conscience Fund. Not many people know of the existence of the Conscience Fund. $5 came in as the initial donation of the Conscience Fund. The Conscience Fund was established for the sole purpose of giving people an opportunity who had stolen from or defrauded the government to make amends. Most of the responses are obviously anonymous in nature. The first 175 years of the existence of the Conscience Fund, over $5.5 million had been given of people who had sinned, stolen, or somehow defrauded the government. Listen to what it says about some of the specifics of what had been turned in. This is interesting. One note came in from a person anonymously. It said, please accept this money for two postal stamps that I reused. (laughs) They sent in the money to cover the cost of those postal stamps. The conscience fund, you can use that if you need to. Another individual felt obliged to pay a penalty. Said about eight years ago, I took from a railroad station an item worth about $25, and this has been on my conscience since. And so I'm enclosing $50 to clear my conscience. This was eight years that it had lasted. Said they get money turned in from people who had been, uh, 
who had completed their military service and yet they had kept some of the possessions to cover their conscience. They would send in money. One person said, enclosed his $210 for some letters that I read many years ago and some food I didn't pay for. Had nothing to do with the U.S. government, but they had to clear their conscience. Largest gift they'd ever received was $381,000. Listen to this. This is the way you don't do it. One person wrote a letter that said, Dear Internal Revenue Service, I've not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. Enclosed, find a cashier's check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. (laughs) That's the way you don't do it. That's not confession and repentance. That's uh, covering my tracks. (laughs) You know, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, you and I still sin, don't we? We've not arrived. And that sin will still own us as much as anybody we read of in Scripture, if we don't own it first. When you and I choose to confess and we take ownership, we take possession of our sin, we agree with God, Lord, I've blown it. What we find is the beauty of the forgiveness of God. Look back again to chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Listen to the joy in David's life as he's now been reconciled in his fellowship with God. His relationship with God had not ended. When you as a believer sin, your relationship doesn't end, but your fellowship needs to be restored. Listen to what David says, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Confession takes possession of sin, and it leads to reconciliation. Let me mention two things real quickly, and I'm done. Genuine confession, number one, is always going to be followed by genuine repentance. God knows the fluff. God knows the lip service, and he doesn't take it. We can deceive a thousand people around us, but God can never be tricked or fooled or deceived by us. The genuineness of our confession before God is displayed through genuine repentance. When we truly are broken over our sin... Steve Farrar calls repentance the the dry heaves of the soul. When we're truly sickened by our own sin and we come to God and we agree with God over it, that we've blown it, we've sinned, we've fallen short in His sight, and we find His grace, we find His mercy, we find His forgiveness, the genuineness of that confession will always be evidenced by the genuineness of our repentance. And where we do not truly repent and turn from, and I did not say struggle because we are always tempted But where we, in the midst of our struggle, commit ourselves and the strength and the power of God's Spirit to say, Lord, give me the strength to to move through and beyond this sin that it might not take root in my life. We will always see the genuineness of confession proved in the genuineness of our repentance. And God knows the difference between the two. But it's always at that point that we find the beautiful compassion of God when we're truly willing to come to Him on His terms. So here's my question for you this morning. Number one, are you a believer who has sin that's been lingering in your life? You say, Brooks, well, I lay my head down every night. I pray for God to forgive me of whatever sins I've committed. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Uh, I can't steal 100 bucks from you and give you a one back and say, that covers it, right? I gave you some money back. No, no, it doesn't work that way. We, you know, we sin wholesale, we confess wholesale. (laughs) You know, we, we can't, you know, do one on a discount rate. And so when we confess our sins one by one, what do we do? We confess them to the Lord one by one. 
which means I can't wait till I lay my head down that night. If I snap at somebody in anger and the Holy Spirit convicts me of that, my response is not to suppress that, push it aside. Why? Because I may grow hard-hearted. It's to say, Lord, you're exactly right. I never should have spoke to that person that way. Forgive me for that angry response. Help me to walk in your spirit that I might live above this sin in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. And where needed, I go back and I reconcile with that person as well. And we keep a short list. And what we find is, is that our walk with God becomes insulated, it becomes close, it becomes vibrant, it becomes protected. And whenever sin begins to make an intrusion into our walks with Christ, it's dealt with quickly. It doesn't allow its roots to go deeply. It's confessed, forsaken, and we move on in God's grace. And so what sin is there for you, Christian, that may be lingering? And today you have to decide, will I move on with a hard heart, distance myself with God from God? Will I choose my own sinful choice over the beauty of a fellowship with God? Or will I confess it, own it, possess it, and ask for his restoration in my life? And that choice is completely up to you. And then the second question would be, do you have a relationship with Christ? Because there is another type of confession Scripture speaks of, and it's that confession of Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. Listen to what it says as I close with Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, confesses, resulting in salvation. You see, for the one who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, the first most important decision of all for you is to deal with the sin issue of your life. It's that sin that will reserve a spot for you in hell, not heaven. It's that sin that will not only break your relationship with God as it has now, but will break your relationship with him forever. It's that sin issue because God is holy and perfect, can't allow sin into heaven. It's that sin issue that ultimately will bring you to a place where you will experience the wrath and the judgment of God because that's what sin deserves. But today you have the choice to accept the payment that Jesus made for your sin. And as you agree with the gospel and you confess him as Lord You receive him and his forgiveness, his payment for your sin, inviting him in to take over. He'll take his forgiveness and apply it to your life. And you can leave here today for every day with a clear conscience before God and a walk with God that makes a difference in this world. Let's pray. Lord, I realize... I realize the importance of a message like this, not because I've preached it wonderfully, I haven't, But Lord, I realize that it's this topic that many times is the hinge between a vibrant, growing, joy-filled Christian life and a Christian life that is absolutely miserable. And Lord, I know times in my life where I've chosen sin over you. And Lord, I was not willing to put it down and I was not willing to agree with you over it. And I made excuses for it. And I know that I remember the times in my life and I'm sure there'll be more as I walk this walk if you grant me many years on this earth of experiencing the misery of choosing sin over closeness to Christ. But Lord, we thank you for the beauty of that hinge called confession that for us as believers, when we just agree with you and we own our sin and we don't excuse it, we confess it to you and that's proven through repentance in our lives. Oh God, we find that you are a God of compassion and a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of forgiveness. Where would we be, Lord, any of us, if you didn't respond that way? And so we thank you for the cross that secures our forgiveness. We thank you for your heart, Lord, that grants compassion to we, your children, your people, still who have so far to go to be like Christ, that you meet us where we are. You never excuse our sin, but you're always willing to cleanse it. 
that if we confess those sins, your word tells us, you're always faithful to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. So Lord, I pray. I pray for a I pray for a moment where the bell rings for any who are here this morning that are choosing their sin over confession and being right with you. Lord, I pray that today that they would choose to call it what it is, to own it, but they would confess it before you and turn from it. Lord, restore them to right fellowship with you, I pray. And Lord, for those that don't know you, I pray that they would make the greatest confession of all, that you, Lord Jesus, are God who died and rose that they are a sinner in need of salvation. As they turn from their sin, may they invite Christ to come in and forgive them, to be Lord and Savior of their life. So bless these decisions that we need to make, we pray, Lord. For it is in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.